Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Well, good evening. I want to begin by echoing the same thing that Scott said when he began this morning. I appreciate the opportunity to speak. Um, It's been a while for me. It seems like the spring of 2020 just threw everything out of whack and and, uh, opportunities that kind of regularly existed for men doing different things in the congregation kind of went by the wayside there for a while. So I apologize if I'm real rusty this evening. You'll just have to bear with me as I struggle through my notes here. Um, But I wanted to talk this morning uh, to start by saying, kind of bringing us back to Genesis. In the beginning, we see just a, a perfect setting, an ideal picture where God, having worked six days, six periods of morning and evening, he then rested on the seventh day. And when he rested on that seventh day, he saw that, that everything was good that he had made. And so we, we began to see the relationship that he had with man. He walked with man in the garden. Uh, The ground had yet no curse upon it, and so it brought forth yield with the full blessing of God. There were no thorns nor thistles to get in the way, no toil or difficult labor that makes you sweat or bleed as you're trying to bring forth produce from the ground in order to to reap your harvest. Um, It was all a good kind of work, I would imagine, one that took place with joy, uh, one that took place uh, with fulfillment, and again, one that had God's full blessing. It's been pointed out to me before, and maybe uh, everyone's heard this, but on that seventh day, there was no mention of morning and evening. So it seems to point to the fact that God, in that seventh day rest with man, desired that that to be an eternal eternal relationship, an eternal setting uh, that he had created with man. Of course, as we go on in Genesis chapter 3, we see that in man's attempt to, to be like God, kind of be their own God, so to speak, they sinned, and God cast man out of that perfect setting, in that perfect location, perfect relationship that they had. And uh, from this point on, it seems like we see evidence that man always longed to be back in that setting. Man longed to be back in that relationship with God. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, we see Lamech, the father of Noah. It said, Lamech had a son named him Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work, and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And I take that to be a prophetic statement because indeed it would be through Noah's lineage that Abraham would come and the promise of Abraham and of course all the blessings that would come through Abraham. Um, But it seemed like there was a a longing in that statement. This this one's going to give us rest as if we need some type of deliverer to bring us back, to bridge the gap, to bring us back to that ideal setting. It's no fun to labor and worry in your work. I think we all, all have that experience. I know I do um, in my work. There's, there's things that you foresee maybe as a problem, and you, and you think, oh, I hope that's not going to be a problem. And if it is, I hope it's not going to be a big one. And that's not a, a fun thing to have to deal with in our work. Um, and so the rest of the Bible story, I think we see that progression of God showing how he was going to indeed give the way to provide that bridge back to that ideal setting in the garden. 
where man could trust as God as the giver of life, where he could trust in God's provision to provide the fruit, and where he could uh, rest in that eternal reward of being in his presence again. In Revelations 22, 1 through 3, John, in his vision, he says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Isn't that what we long for? It's what, what I long for, that situation that we see again with God. And so God in his wisdom gave man, <clears throat> excuse me, gave man reminders of that seventh day scenario, I guess we'll call it, or that seventh day setting. By embedding in their culture and their economy certain things and certain practices and observances that would help them to remember uh, that. Of course, we, we know one of them being the, the, I guess the most obvious that comes to mind is the Sabbath day. God said six days you'll work among the curse, but the seventh day you'll stop. You won't, you won't work among the curse. You're going you're gonna to stop and you're going to rest in, in my trust, you're gonna, or you're going to rest in my care, in my providence. Of course, this was one of the Ten Commandments, and we first, I believe we first see this in Exodus 16. I, I think it's at least where the term Sabbath first appears. And it's where Moses uh, told the people to go out and collect enough manna just for the day. And they were to go and collect that manna and, and consume all of it. Uh, Moses said, don't, you know, whatever you, whatever you gather, that's what you're going to consume. And of course, we saw some that tried to tried to save some up. They didn't trust in the fact that there would be more there the next day. And so they, they decided to put some back uh, due to a lack of that trust. We also see uh, Moses telling them to, to do that every day. Collect enough, eat it all. Don't trust, uh, don't, don't trust in yourself. Trust in God for it to be there. And he also said collect enough on the sixth day. You're to do that every day, but on the sixth day, you're to collect enough for two days. Uh, because if you come out on the 7th, it's not going to be there. And again, we would see people come out looking forward as if it was going to be there. Um, and so that's one idea I think that God gave to remind man uh, of that situation where God had full trust in him. God provided the, the life. He provided the fruit. He provided the reward. Another of those cases is in Jeremiah 17, uh, where, they were, where Israel was told not to bring a load through the gates of Jerusalem. And I take that to mean, don't, don't, as you come into Jerusalem to worship, don't bring goods to, to trade. And to, there, there should be no buying and selling going on as if uh, there was maybe some anxiety that the previous six days didn't provide enough for that. Or, or I'm going to take advantage of the seventh day to store up even more and have excess. And before he says that, notice what is written in Jeremiah 17.1. He says, the sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart. That's not a very, not a very good picture of Israel, is it? To have their sin engraved on, on their heart. Meaning that all the desire of what they wanted, they were, they were trying to achieve. And they did achieve what they were looking for. If we go down to verse 3, he says, O mountain of mine in the countryside, I will give over your wealth. So they had achieved uh, something by, by going after what they desired. But he says, I will give over your wealth and all your treasures for booty, your high places for sin throughout your borders. 
And you will even of yourself let go of your inheritance that I gave you. So we see what they were willing to trade. Uh, they were willing to trade what God had given them for what they sought after. He goes on in verse 5 to paint a picture, and I love this picture. He says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, in a land of salt without inhabitant. But as God is trying to get man to remember the perfect setting back in Eden, notice what he tells them that, that they'll look like if they trust in him. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. So God says, you can do it your way, but here's, here's what you're going to look like. You're going, to be, you're going to look like man when he was cast out in the desert. But if you trust in me, remembering that setting that we had, that relationship that we had on that seventh day, when you trusted in me to provide and to take care of you, you're going to be like a tree planted by the water. I'm going to plant you back in that setting, and you'll never cease to yield fruit. It's a beautiful picture that he gives us. And so not only did God command the Sabbath day, but he progresses and commands a Sabbath year. So he says, every six years, you'll sow, you'll reap, you'll prune, you'll live among the curse for six years. But on the seventh year, you will not do those things. You will cease to sow, you'll cease to prune, you will cease to gather the crops. I want us to think about that for just a second. When you, when you picture a farmer sowing a field, what does the field look like before he, before he sows seed? There's just nothing there, is it? It's just a big, big dirt field of dirt. And so I think the, the idea is when he's telling them not to sow, he's saying you, you don't, you're not going to depend upon yourself to go out and, and create life. He tells them not to prune that, that seventh year because when a farmer prunes, the idea is to, to go and cut, make a cut. That encourages more growth and more fruit so you can increase your yield. He says you're not going to do that either and you're not going to gather the crops. And I in, in looking at the word, both of those words, gather, is directly related, for, uh, directly defined as fortify, to wall up or withhold. So we kind of get the picture of what he's saying. You're not going to gather. You're not going to store up and build up this strength or build up this excess. And crops is defined as income, revenue, product. And so he says you're not going to you're not going to be the one to create life. You're not going to one to not going to be the one to go out and bear fruit. You're not going to be the one to gather up the crops. And so God on that seventh or that sabbatical year, he says, not only am I going to be in, uh, in control of that, I'm going to be the giver of life. I'm going to be the one who bears fruit. And I'm going to be the one that, that shows you that I give reward. He takes control of that and he says, you know, normally, normally if it were man gathering the reward, they're going to use it in the way they see fit, which is just like what we've been saying. We're going to, we're going to build up a security. But God says, you're going to have some, you know, don't worry about what you have, but I'm also going to give it to your, your slave, your hired servant, the foreigner, uh, the animals. It's going, to be, it's going to be dispersed in the way that I, I see fit. And so that would be, uh, you know, a great reminder for the people. A day, you know, maybe that we, we can get through that and trusting in God, but a year, think about, the, think about 
having to, to, to go through that and the economic implica implications, the financial implications of having to trust in God to provide for a year. That's an amazing thing for them to have to see. And it was proof to them, a sign to them of, again, that picture of the ideal setting in the garden of what they were really longing for and who they should be trusting in to, uh, to achieve that for them. We see another progression in the year of Jubilee. They were to have seven cycles of seven. So on the 49th year, they were to do just like they did every seventh year. But God said on the day of atonement of that year, on the, the 10th day of the seventh month, he says, you're going to have a, a year of Jubilee. You're going to have another year where you do the same things. You don't, you don't sow, you don't prune, you don't reap. But also it's going to be a celebration of sorts because there's going to be a picture of freedom and release and uh, forgiveness of debts. And without going through all the, the scenarios of what would happen in that place and it's, uh, in that particular year, it's just a beautiful picture of, of if somebody was caught in a, a, a position where they were so uh, poor that they had to sell themselves into a slavery or if they had to sell their land, there was a return to the land. There was a freedom. And so we see that picture not only uh, embedded in of dependence on God, but of celebration of freedom and release and forgiveness. Again, another picture that would have been crystal clear, I think, or should have been crystal clear. So we go from a day, a year, a year of Jubilee, and again, it seems to be a progression that God is showing man, but there seems to be another progression, another step that God actually intended for man to, to so-called get or to understand. And that would be allowing, uh, it would involve allowing uh, the principles of these laws to transform your heart. Not just, not just be obedient to the laws, but allow those laws to change you, to transform your heart to where you actually lived and personified these principles that God was teaching them. Uh, and I think really that was the intention of God's law from the, from the beginning. We, we, read, we can read in Isaiah 1 and Amos 5 where, where Israel was going through the motions in regard of, of their sacrifices and in their worship, but God said, I know I know who you are. You're a nation weighed down with iniquity. And I'm just, I'm not going to have any of it. You can go through the motions, but I know your heart and it's not right. So I think God always wanted the law to transform the person where they actually lived and personified those aspects. And a few years ago, I came across an article as I was trying to study this subject a little bit about the, the sabbatical years and the year of Jubilee. And it was... It, I, kind of just stumbled across the article, and I wish I could give the man credit, but I've Googled every word that I can imagine trying to find it again, and I can't find it. Um, but he was a, a Messianic Jew. He was very knowledgeable, seemed to be very knowledgeable of the Scriptures. And uh, he made this connection, and, and it was just kind of an, a goosebump moment for me. And you may have already made the connection. Uh, you may think it's a stretch. I don't, I don't know. But in writing on this subject, he seemed to focus in on the words untrimmed. When, when we're speaking of, uh, when God was speaking of refrain from gathering the crop from your untrimmed vines. He said the word untrimmed means separate, consecrated. So those vines were consecrated, separated for the Lord. And that wasn't the interesting part to me, but it was in the Hebrew word itself. And that's where he made his point. The Hebrew word for untrimmed is nazir, N-A-Z-I-R. And he made the connection with the Nazarite vow. Strong uh, defines the, uh, Nazir as separate, 
consecrated, hence figuratively from, from the latter, an unpruned vine like an unshorn Nazarite. And in, indeed, when we turn to number six and we look at the Nazarite vow, the word for Nazarite is Nazir. Nazarite and untrimmed is the same, the same word. And so when we go to number six and we look at what God expected them to do, to be a visual representation of in the vow, uh, we can really think of those three things. They were to stay away from a dead person, they were not to cut their hair, and they were to stay away from the grape. Uh, they weren't to eat the flesh, drink the juice, do any, have anything to do with the seeds, the skin, completely stay away from the, uh, from the grape. And I think the connection is a beautiful one. Somebody who was taking on the Nazarite vow that said, I'm going to live a life that's consecrated and holy to God for a, a certain period of time, or whether it was for life or however long they took the vow, they, in, in not going near a, a dead person, they would, in, in essence, be saying, I'm not the one who sows. I'm not the giver of life. I'm a representation of life, and since I'm representing life, I'm going to stay away from the dead. And the cutting of hair is pretty obvious. And God saying, I'm going to be the one that prunes, and I'm going to be the one that bears fruit for you. They were not to, to trim the hair, cut the hair. In staying away from the group, the, the, the group, the great, it was, in, it was a way of saying that God is the one that, that rewards. He is the one that, that fortifies and strengthens and builds up. And so I'm going to be a, a representation of that in my life that shows that God is the one who does that, not me. Um, so I think it's a, it's a wonderful picture, in my opinion, of, of man taking on that personification or that, uh, that aspect of what the law was and living it, not just, not just obeying it or, or abiding by it, but actually living it and showing those principles. Man could become a walking, talking, living, breathing embodiment of those things. Uh, so they, they, would, they would live the aspect of, of having a, a few... Uh, a full assurance of God's provision and care. And they would be a, a, a visual representation of, of freedom and forgiveness and uh, release. And I think we see that. I think God was, was leading up to something that that would actually take place in man. In Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. And notice what he says is going to happen to these people who are oppressed and and uh, have this freedom and, and release. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Such a beautiful picture again of those who trust in him, who live that life that trusts in him. God says, I'm going to plant you, plant you back in Eden. And uh, what's so wonderful about this fulfillment is that Jesus in Luke 4 stands in the synagogue and reads, opens up the scroll of Isaiah, reads this very passage, and he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am, I am the one. I am the one who's going to bridge that gap, and I'm going to perfectly embody God's principles that are seen in his law, that he's been teaching you, that the law has been a tutor to show you 
how he's going to bridge this gap back to have that relationship with God, and I'm the one to perfectly embody that. It's the only way. It's the only way it can happen is for man to be the perfect example of who God is. The men and women who took these Nazar- or the Nazarite vow, they, they weren't perfect. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we read about folks like Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist, as we've just recently studied. And uh, some of these, obviously, their, their imperfections were more obvious than others that when we read about them. Uh, but I want to make a few comparisons to kind of lead the lesson as to who we are uh, this evening. There's a couple of commonalities that I believe are very important. And the first is with their mothers. In regards to Samson, it says there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. In regard to Samuel, in 1 Samuel 1, 1 and 2, speaking of Elkanah, he had two wives, and the name of one was Hannah, the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children, for the Lord had closed her womb. In regards to Zacharias and Elizabeth, parents of John the Baptist, but they had no child because Elizabeth, Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So in the case of each one of these women, it's as if God came and said, I'm, I'm the giver of life. You're a barren field. I'm the one that's going to sow. I'm going to give life, and I will prune and bear forth fruit, and I will be your provision and reward. It's only found in me. Another common theme we see is with the, with the children, the sons who took these, this Nazarite vow, was with, the Lord, was with the fact that the Lord was with each one of them. With Samson, the child grew and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. With Samuel, then Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. In regard to John, he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. I think it's safe to say that none of these men could have fulfilled the purpose that God had given them without God's presence being with them. And so again, the point of of this tonight is I want us to see who we are. If we look at Galatians chapter 4, I think that points us in the right direction. Galatians chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. So just like Samson, just like Samuel and John, we too are children of a barren woman. And if we're children of a promise, then we've been set apart for a purpose. What makes us children of the promise? Paul had previously written in Galatians 3, verse 7, he says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And when we talk about faith, it it really has the meaning of embodying our full trust in God, doesn't it? We trust only in God because we embody his character 
and not ours. We trust in him. So we don't sow. God gave us a picture of what we are without him. Ephesians 1 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We can't achieve that on our own. It's only through God, uh, it's only through his grace by faith that he sows and brings life to us. And if we are a representative of life, then we stay away from the things that, that cause death. We don't sow to death. When we try and become like Adam and Eve who tried to become like God, we produce deeds of the flesh. Things like immorality, sensuality, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, envy, and on and on. Those things that Galatians 5 mentioned. So we let God who gave us life live in us because we're not capable of producing or sustaining it without his help of being with us. We don't sow, we don't prune. When we prune, when we do the things that, that, that we desire and the way that things that we want, we just produce more deeds of the flesh, don't we? Let's look at John chapter 15. I love the way that Jesus puts it here in, in uh, 1 through 5. John 15, 1 through 5. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean, or you're already cut or pruned because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul likens this relationship in Romans 7 to that of a marriage. He begins talking about a, a man and a woman, and he says, So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. And Paul says, so here's my point of using a, an analogy of a marriage. He says, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. You know, when we look at Galatians 5, it doesn't say, talk about the fruit of Chris. It talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, self-control, those things that are, are, are not things that are born of, of me when I try to prune. Those things are born of God when I have a marriage with his spirit. Uh, if, if keeping with the, with the analogy of the church being the bride of Christ, if we are the bride of Christ, then we have to have that, we have to have that marriage when the two become one and I, and I allow God to live in me to produce that fruit. And that's the only way we produce fruit that God is pleased with. I read Philippians 3 this morning where Paul speaks of a, a righteousness not by the law or not of his own, but by faith. Paul said it can only come by, by faith that we have that uh, relationship with God. So we don't sow, we don't prune. We allow God to do those things, and we certainly don't gather the crops. We can, we can do our best to store up reward or security in this world, but we'll never... We'll never be successful. Even if we are, like that picture in Jeremiah where God says, you have wealth, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it away because you're really just trading your, your true inheritance for that. 
And when we do that, if we seek that way and we have the sin written on our hearts, we're going to be that bush in the desert instead of that tree planted by the water uh, that never ceases to yield fruit. And so when we trust in the Lord, we'll be, that, we'll be back in that ideal setting of Eden where we can be with God forevermore and we can be thankful for the life that he gave, the provision that he's given us and the reward. Hebrews 11:6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Romans 5, 1 through 2 speaks of our introduction to God's grace by faith. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. He goes on in chapter 6 to talk about, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So it's interesting to see that our, our baptism is, is an introduction to God's grace by faith. I don't think we emphasize that enough sometimes in the church, that when we come to God, we come to God by, by faith. Um, our baptism is something that we do by faith, because we trust wholly in him to give us life and for him to, to bear fruit in us and for him to give us the reward. Uh, we never really do stop uh, hearing God's word, do we? We talk about hearing, we, we need to hear God's word. Uh, we shouldn't ever continue to, to stop to hear it and to, to gain more knowledge of him because if we never really stop believing in him or we never should stop seeking knowledge of him by which uh, there shouldn't be a point where we say, well, I don't need to hear anything else. I believe that's good enough. We're going to continue to hear. We're going to continue to grow in our belief to where we have a stronger faith. The repentance process, I don't believe, is just one step. Um, if I, we talk about repentance being a turning and going in a different direction, we just read the Hebrew uh, verse that said he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We're never going to continue hopefully going in that direction where we pursue God. Our confession shouldn't just be a one-time event where someone asks the question, do you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? And we say yes, and that's our confession. Again, if we are living a life that personifies God's, uh, God's personification, for God's character, and God's laws, if we're living them, and if we're, we classify that as a life of faith, then our life is a confession, isn't it? We have a whole life to confess. And we never stop, even though we may be baptized that one, one time, we never stop the crucifixion of self and the denial of self. Jesus said we're to take up our cross daily, and Paul said, I die daily. All these things are just the beginning when we talk about, when we give the invitation, we offer these things. All these are, are the beginning of a life of faith with God. And you have that opportunity now to begin that walk by faith with him. If you haven't done so, please do so while we stand and while we sing. Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, 
Please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.